This morning, as we come to John chapter 8, let's read. I'm actually, let's start from chapter 7, verse 53. So the last verse, that's the section where this really all comes together or begins. So John chapter 7, verse 53 says, And every man went unto his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up his, himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him ca first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word. We ask for your blessing as it comes to challenge us and open our eyes to see a little more deeply who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a tricky passage, uh, to be sure. It's tricky on a number of reasons. One is the subject matter itself is uh, is serious, um, but also the text itself causes a little bit of problems. It is one of only two longer passages amongst the manuscripts that there is doubt over where it fits or what it should be. Uh, the other is the longer ending of Mark from Mark 9, 16 verse 9. What makes this one tricky and causes a little bit of doubt on it is because in, although it is in many, many, many manuscripts, it's in different places. So while it's often found in John, it's often found in different places in John. And sometimes it's even found in the Gospel of Luke, which leads many to think it may not have originally been written by John, but has certainly been considered important enough to include along the way. Now, despite whether we think it fits here, and the problem with it fitting here is it really interrupts the flow of the passage. It really just does not seem to fit here because we go from chapter 7 when we're at tabernacles and speaking about the living water to the next part of chapter 8 where Jesus speaks about being the light of the world which also connects to tabernacles and then in the middle is this section which just doesn't seem to fit. But regardless of whether it fits here or not, what we find in it is a passage sufficiently good enough for us to say, we can take this as authoritative and there is much that we can learn from it and ought to learn from it. So there is, I believe, no mistake necessarily in its inclusion here, but I think uh, uh, Providence has us established then and learn from it. It is a passage which, as we look at it, stirs many, many great emotions. 
As you read this and you think about what takes place here in this, this passage and you see it and you think about what, what is going on, it stirs up uh, emotions of, of anger, perhaps, or frustration. As you watch the way the Pharisees interact with the woman or, or maybe we stand in, in awe over the way Jesus acts and interacts with people here and his, his ability to turn the situation around on its head and, and instead of being trapped, ends up trapping them. Maybe there's that, or, or maybe we come here and it brings up these, these uh, emotions of, of self-righteousness as we look and, and see ourselves much like the Pharisees or even conviction. Perhaps it stirs up within our hearts compassion, love, thankfulness. I think as we look at this and we consider what Jesus is saying here and what, what Jesus does here, we can be moved in all of those ways and learn a great deal. And that's why I say this is a, a powerful passage that can deeply move us to see Jesus more clearly for who he is. Because here in this passage, we are revealed so much more about the heart of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? What was his purpose in being here? It opens our eyes a little bit more to his true nature. And it convicts us about what we can so easily become. And how we can so easily fall into these traps of self-righteousness and anger. It's not really a passage about immorality, even though that's the situation that takes place. It's much more than that, and we can certainly learn from it about morality, and we certainly will. But this reaches to the very center of God's relationship to man through Christ Jesus. Now, as we come here and as the Gospel of John moves on after this, the, the attacks on Jesus and the, the anger and the uh, enmity towards Jesus is just going to increase and continue to increase. In fact, as we continue through John chapter 8, next week we see th the very next day they're attacking Jesus again even more. We're now, time-wise, only about six months from the crucifixion. So things are really starting to get intense. Things are starting to get to the serious end of Jesus' mission. And as this takes place, and no matter where we see this fit in terms of the gospel and in terms of the life of Jesus... It's important we look here and see where does Jesus go. It tells us in verse 1 that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. It says Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. If it takes place in this context, the others, the Sanhedrin, leave. They go to their own homes. For the night, Jesus goes uh, up onto the Mount of Olives, which is a place he would often go. What's significant about this is more often than not, when we're told that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, when we see him there or are told what he is doing there, he is usually spending the night alone with the Father in prayer. And so it seems right for us to assume that when it tells us here in verse 1, that's exactly what he's doing. He's gone that night to spend some alone time with the Father as he prepares for what is about to take place in the months ahead. The constant barrage and the, the tiresome ministry takes its toll even on Jesus. Just like it is for us, living for God in this world isn't easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus to stand and to take the accusations day after day. It wore on his soul, it wore on his body. It can be tiresome, painful, and for us, confusing. 
So there's lessons to learn here from Jesus about spending time alone with God in a world which is constantly against God. Make it a regular part of what you do and who you are. We've seen previously as we look through John chapter 7 that Jesus is said to satisfy us completely, that he refreshes us and revitalizes us like living water. Jesus needs that, that refreshing from the Father, to face the new attacks coming in the days ahead. So as we look and we examine this this passage together, there's four things I want us to examine or think about this morning. One, that we are made for purity. We'll look at the mistreatment of the woman. Then we'll see the mass exodus of the religious. And finally, the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. So let's begin here at the start by talking about we are made for purity. Verse 3 and 4 gives us the context of what's going on here. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst... They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. As we consider what's taking place here, I think it's suitable for us to consider Christ's view of adultery. And I know we have a mixed audience here and and a, a broad range of audience. So let me give a very brief, broad definition of adultery so that no matter where you are here, we can come to an understanding of what's taking place. And shall I say that adultery in its broadest sense here is when a married person treats another person as if they are married. And that seems a a suitable way to define it where we can all understand where we are. The principle, though, while this specifically speaks of adultery, the principles here apply just as truly to the unmarried as they do to the married. So the underlying principles of holiness and morality that God lays out applies to all of us, no matter our marital circumstances. The situation, particularly, specifically, adultery here, is very prominent in our society today. It's a very real problem. Your survey of Christians, and in fact, the more these surveys do, the worse the outcomes become, But surveys of Christians are finding fewer and fewer Christians think that this kind of living is wrong. We're moving further and further away from what God says about the morality we ought to live by. God is very clear on this. The seventh commandment says very clearly, you shall not commit adultery. In our society, Uh, Although we live by a whole bunch of different rules and a whole bunch of different laws and ideas, one that seems to stick through most people is this idea of the golden rule, at least in how many of us understand it, which most boil down to some idea of do unto others as you would have do unto you or love your neighbor as yourself, to be a kind person. Well, in that regard, let's say we we, uh, live our lives based on that, that simple, broad rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do good to to others. Paul sums it up like this. Romans 13. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So if we're going to say, look, I want to live my life based on the golden rule, 
Paul is telling us God's idea of the golden rule is that includes adultery. That includes this type of immorality. Paul explains even further in many passages. In Galatians 5, he tells us, he gives a list of sins that keep you from heaven. In the list, adultery. If we go unrepentant with these things, there is no heaven. There is no eternal life. Jesus, of course, we know, takes it even further. So Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's not just about the act of adultery, but it's about the heart. It's not just about doing it, but it's the desire for another. The, the look for another. This is as clearly adultery in the eyes of God as the very act of committing it. The end game, of course, in our world, in a world which not only uh, accepts this type of life, but encourages it, the end result in a society like that that encourages it is the destruction of marriage. That's the end game. We've been saying this for years. All of these freedom ideas of relationship have all had the end game of getting rid of marriage. Why? Because society wants to get rid of God. And if we want to get rid of God, we attack the two very things that God designed. The church and marriage. If a society can attack those two representations, those two designs that God put in the world to represent him, then we are, by its very nature, attacking God to rid ourselves of God. We could spend hours on the topic, but that's not for our time this morning. But know this. Marriage. Marriage is a good, honourable right and it should be pursued in godliness. It's one of, the, one of the blessings that we had in these past weeks was to be able to attend and, and a great honour for me to be able to officiate the wedding. And it's a great honour to me because it is something that is wonderfully blessed by God. And as married people, we need to put every effort, every effort into protecting your marriage, strengthening your marriage, and building it, because it is a God-honoured institution. So as we look, firstly, we see, one, what Jesus thinks of sin, or of adultery, is adultery is sin. But with that, it means adultery has consequences. It has consequences. Our society is constantly trying to convince us that we can do whatever we want with whoever we want, whenever we want, and it doesn't matter. That there are no real consequences to these things. And we try and mitigate the consequences of those by bringing in new laws or new ideas or new procedures. We're being sold a lie. We're being sold a lie that these relationships, these whatever-we-want relationships, are freeing, not binding like marriage. We sat at Kevin and Lauren's wedding, we sat with a, an older couple, I think they'd been married for just over 50 years. And she said to me, the, the wife said to me, they were, were at a, uh, a place and, and somebody had asked them, how long have you been married? And she said, we've been married over 50 years. And you know, I'm thinking, that's a wonderful thing. And she said, they replied to her, wow, that's boring. 
this is the bill the world is selling us. And it's a lie. There is no freedom in these relationships. Adultery destroys families. Adultery destroys children, churches, and societies. I read a new report this week of a new study which shows that divorce adversely affects children greater than the death of a parent. The natural consequences of immorality are high. It's part of the reason why God sets such a high standard and such high consequences for it. The punishment for adultery under the law, under the Old Testament law, we find in places like Leviticus 20, was death. But it was death for both participants, man and woman. That is how deeply God is concerned about the honor of marriage and what it represents and the consequences that come with it. That partly explains why, you know, as we come up to Christmas, it partly explains why Joseph was so nervous when he found out Mary was with child, because of the consequences that came with that. So Christ's view of adultery is that adultery is sin, and it has consequences. So what is Christ's plan for men and women? Well, what we know of Christ's plan for men and women, firstly, is that for both of us, we are made to reflect God. We are made to reflect God. When we talk about purity and we talk about faithfulness in our relationships, often when it's, and it's from uh, churches or religious things, we often say, well, the church teaches or my religion says or because this is the morality of my religion. And we talk about it in terms of religious teaching. I don't believe because the church says it's this or, or that or that's the consequences. But the importance of purity isn't a church teaching. And so I'm not standing here telling you that purity in your marriage and purity in your life is something that comes on the authority of church. It's bigger than that. It comes with the command of God. So this isn't about religion. This isn't about trying to work your way and stand right before God one day or do good or do bad or, or have a, a good balance sheet or be a moral person. At the heart of it, it's not really about that. It's bigger than that. It's God's command. It's God's design because that's how he made us to be. God instructs us this way because it's for our good. It's for our protection. God's design is that in godly, pure marriage relationship, we will find fulfillment and we will find satisfaction. God made us in his image, each and every one of us. And in his image, he made us to reflect his glory, to bring praise to him and to worship him. Adultery robs God of glory and it robs you of joy. John Gill uh, the Baptist pastor and theologian of, of many years ago comments on this passage. He says that phrase here in, at the end of verse 4, in the very act, is from the word which is for thief, and says this, in the very act, or in the theft itself, for adultery is a theft. It is an unlawful use of another's property. 
That in the sense that in marriage, each of us belongs to the other. Because we were made for commitment. It's how God designed us to be. We were made for commitment. The marriage relationship is a commitment. It began that way in Genesis chapter 2. When God creates marriage, he says that the man and woman are to leave their father and mother and to cleave, be joined to, cling to one another. Literally, be glued to. In marriage, you are bound to each other in mutual love and mutual submission. Adultery is a breach of the covenant relationship before God. Now remember, of course, that we're not only thinking of the act, but the desire. Now that we understand the seriousness of the circumstance in God's eye, that is, this is how, when Jesus sees the circumstance, this is how he understands that circumstance, now we can examine how Jesus deals with it in this moment. So let's turn our attention to look at the mistreatment of the woman. So, of course, verse 3 tells us they bring her before it. It's probably early in the morning, uh, based on what verse 2 tells us. It says in verse 4, They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou this? This, they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. In this moment... We see the treatment of this woman with callous humiliation. We've noted in passing here that the law said that if caught in adultery or if accused of adultery and found to be guilty, that both the man and the woman were to be killed. Where's the man? They've only brought the woman. Where's the man? By law, if they're going to follow the law, he should be there too and be brought before Jesus. But we know there's always a double standard in these issues. Even in Christian circles, the blame for infidelity is too often laid more heavily on the woman. Society still looks down on immoral women but praises immoral men, even in the Me Too generation. It's a tragic truth. This woman is just a prop. She's being used to test, to tempt Jesus. She was being used and abused by everyone here. The man she was uh, said to be found with, the Pharisees, everyone around her is abusing her. Jesus is the only one not abusing her. Clearly, the man she was with didn't love her. The Pharisees were just using her to make a point. So they drag her into the temple early in the morning, probably even before the Sanhedrin normally meets together. And there, there in, the, in the temple, they put her in the middle of everyone and they make a big scene, showing her off and what it's done. Did she do wrong? Yes. Okay, there's no doubt about that. The passage makes no no question about that. Jesus doesn't make any question about whether she did wrong or not. Yes, she did wrong. But their treatment wasn't about that. 
The treatment wasn't about what she had done wrong. The treatment was just humiliation. That's all this was. They did not care about her. And the actions they have show that they didn't care about God either or the law of God because they're only using it to their advantage. They stood there in cruel judgment, heaping blame and judgment on this woman. There are lessons here to learn about our attitudes toward people living in sin generally, how we look on the world and those people that live contrary to the word of God, whether it be the adulterer or the, the homosexual or, or whatever immorality it may be. Too often, like the Pharisees, we stand in callous, cruel judgment of them. Do we believe what the Bible says about immorality? Yes, we do. But that is not our call to treat people with disdain and disgust. This was simply what they thought to be a clever trap. What about the Sanhedrin and the witnesses? You see, part of the cruelty of this moment was that this woman should not have been taken to Jesus because he has no authority over what she's done. She should have been taken before the Sanhedrin, the rulers of people, not Jesus. But they didn't. In fact, most likely, this is even before the Sanhedrin convenes that morning. The law also required witnesses, usually two, but sometimes in circumstances like this, only one witness was necessary. So not only are we missing the man, we're also missing the witnesses. Where are they? The Jewish law and the Roman law is what the Sanhedrin is using to put Jesus in a tough spot. So the Jewish law says, as we've noted, that she was to be put to death. The Roman law says that Jews were not allowed to do that. They had no authority to put anyone to death. That's why they take Jesus to the Romans when they're going to kill him. So if Jesus says to the, answer their question, stone her, they go to the Romans and they tell the Romans, this man is breaking the law. Now, if Jesus says, don't stone her, then he's breaking the Mosaic law. And they say, well, you're not a prophet of God. You're breaking the Mosaic law. This would also damage the reputation that Jesus has built up over these many years that he is compassionate and loving towards sinners. So they're hoping that by posing this question, no matter how he answers, it ruins his reputation and it gives them a chance to destroy him. And in the midst of this, we see their careless attitudes. They're stuck in their religion. It's easy to judge their religion. It's easy to judge organized religion even today. Because the truth is, as we look at ourselves, we often display the same callousness. It's difficult being a Christian. The longer you are a Christian, the less you understand the non-Christian. We become more like Christ and we, we forget what it was and how we felt and what it was like to be an unbeliever. That's by God's design. Because we're becoming more like Christ. We can stand for righteousness and still be loving. We can stand for truth and still be loving. 
see beyond the circumstances, the surface. We must see beyond people's dress, beyond their lifestyle, beyond their language, beyond their hairstyle, beyond whatever it may be. We're tempted, with many like this adulterer, to look at them in disdain, or perhaps even, as the man in this situation, to overlook and ignore it. Perhaps as we look at those living in sin, no matter what it may be, we feel disgust and have attitudes of disgust towards them. Or we can learn from Jesus to see people as image bearers of God. Image bearers of God who are trapped, who are deceived by sin, who can't see the deception, who can't see the trap they're in, but who nevertheless are bound by what kills them. As we see the mistreatment of this woman, we look at the response of Jesus, and in Jesus' response we see the mass exodus of the religious. The second half of verse 6 says, But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. As we think through what's happening here, Consider your position. The Pharisees are persistent in their questioning. They want Jesus to answer. Jesus doesn't answer at first, so they persist even more. Now it tells us that when they ask Jesus the question, Jesus stoops down and he starts writing in the sand. No one knows what Jesus wrote. They have no idea. Some suggest he was writing the names of the accusers or even the sins of those men standing around him. We have no way of knowing that. The best inclination we have about what Jesus wrote here is a short phrase at the end of verse 6, as though he heard them not. That's the best indication of what we have about what Jesus wrote, which suggests what Jesus did was he stooped down and didn't actually write anything important, was probably just doodling in the ground, in dismissive attitude, not listening to them. I'm not paying attention. Your question is not worthy of my response. It's ridiculous and stupid, which to the Pharisees was the utmost of disrespect. How dare he not pay attention to our question? Which is why it says they keep persisting and they keep asking. What say you? What say you? What say you? And Jesus keeps ignoring. They continue to pester. And so Jesus finally rises and he gives them that famous and often taken out of context words. Now, when Jesus says here that uh, 
uh, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He is not saying that you have to be perfect to judge. That's not what this statement is about. He's pointing out their hypocrisy. He's pointing out the ridiculousness of the whole circumstance, the whole situation. Because they know the very act of them bringing her there and the way they did it is completely sinful. He's pointing out their hypocrisy, especially the hypocrisy of that moment. Jesus' question here drives us to this question. Where do you stand with God? That's where this question that Jesus gives really drives us. Where do we stand with God? That's Jesus' question for us all. The messiness of this situation and the whole thing is because God demands complete purity. The law shows us that. God demands purity because he is completely pure. That purity, that purity of God demands that all impurity must be punished. All of it. So how do we stand before God? How do you stand before God? As Jesus asks that question and he poses the question to them, we then see that cowardly exit. As they all slink away, there is some personal conviction. It doesn't take a long look to know what we are truly like. Even just a moment contemplating who we are and what we are like reveals to us we're all caught in hypocrisy and sin. Every one of these men knew they could not stone her. Why? Well, exactly, we don't know why, but perhaps they all knew the witnesses were to throw the first stone. So the question arises, how do they know the sin was taking place? They are put in a very dangerous position. Jesus didn't excuse the woman's guilt here. Right? So in saying this and, and turning the tables on the Pharisees and saying, well, if you have sin... Then you can't, if you don't have sin, then cast the first stone. He's not saying she's without sin and excusing her. He's turning the table so that we will consider what is going on and what is, is true and right. Jesus didn't need to condemn them, they did it themselves. But as Jesus stoops down again, perhaps he stoops down again to give them some time to consider the situation, to allow them to think about where they're at or what is going to take place or if one of them thinks they have what it takes to throw that stone. But notice that Jesus did not say leave. He just told them, if you think you can cast the first stone, consider where you are with God. There's no call to leave. It makes me wonder if their hard heart led them to pass up one of the most wonderful opportunities they had before them. Instead of walking away in guilt, they could have sought forgiveness. But they didn't. They slunk away in shame. 
They walk away in guilt, but tomorrow they will be back again attacking. And just like these Pharisees here, today is a remarkable opportunity for us. We can walk out of here this morning in guilt and shame, knowing we are hypocrites with just a casual look at who we are, or we can seek God for forgiveness and find his mercy and grace, which is where we come to in our last thought this morning, the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. When Jesus, verse 10, had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So as we look here at what Jesus is doing, we are reminded what we have learned along the way, that condemnation isn't Jesus' purpose. Condemnation isn't why Jesus came to the earth. Because we know, Jesus has already told us, we are condemned already. Jesus didn't need to condemn us. We're already condemned. John chapter 3 and verse 17, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Luke chapter 9 and verse 56, For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. The law was to open our eyes to see our sin, to see how far short we had fallen, that we're failures, that we're all guilty. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, 21 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Condemnation wasn't Jesus' purpose because we're condemned already. The cross was his purpose. The cross was his purpose. Now, I want you to keep in mind this, this moment, this moment where this woman is caught in adultery and all the sin that abounds in this moment as you listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. For he hath made him to be sin for the woman. For he hath made him to be sin for the Pharisee, for the disciple, for the follower and the unbeliever. He took our sin, not knowing any sin himself, and he bore it in his own body. First John verse 14 and we have seen and do testify that the father sent the son not to condemn the world to be the savior of the world jesus came to pay the debt for our sin and so instead of bringing condemnation instead of heaping condemnation here jesus calls to repentance as we look at what Jesus does, verse 11, she said, No man, Lord, and Jesus said unto her, 
neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Say, so how, could, how could Jesus do this? She, she's a sinner. We, she, we know that. It's, it's there. She's a sinner. Is Jesus just going to let her get away with the sin? Like overlook it and, and not just let it go? Is he being easy on sin here? No. Because in six months, Jesus would pay the debt for that sin. That's why he was here. That's what this was about. Psalm 85 says, Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In Jesus, justice and mercy meet. In Christ, the righteousness of God and the mercy of God perfectly come together. Sin could be punished and forgiveness could be offered because of what Jesus came to do. And so to the woman, just as to us, he calls to repent. Listen to what he says. Go and stop sinning. That's his call to turn from her sinful ways and to follow him. Stop living your life of sin. Stop following your own way and follow me. He doesn't ignore her sin. He calls her to repent of it. He calls her to turn from her life of sin and to follow him. And the same call is offered to each and every one of us today. Turn from your life of sin. Turn from your selfishness. Turn from your own ways and follow Jesus. Find forgiveness in him. Today, today is a great opportunity in your life. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, Jesus is giving you a chance today. In the, 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 the story of this woman, he is calling you to repentance. Because just like this woman, Jesus is not going to ignore your sin. It will be punished. There is no question. It will be punished. Jesus is offering you a chance to be forgiven. And have eternal life. How? By believing that Jesus died to pay the debt for your sin. That Jesus died so, in effect, you didn't have to be stoned. But could turn and follow him. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. As Paul says, I was a horrible sinner. I was a murderer. But Jesus paid my debt so that you could look at my life and see that Jesus could pay your debt too. 
believe him and be forgiven. Christ can forgive you and change your life forever. So if you don't know Jesus as your saviour, don't walk away from here this morning hard-hearted like the Pharisees. Don't slink away in shame and guilt that can be forgiven and you can find life. Walk in humility. Believer, there's so much for us to learn from Jesus here. The lessons could go on and on. We know we're far from perfect. Even though we're forgiven, we're far from perfect. So walk in humility. Pursue Christ in all of your relationships. Pursue his good. Pursue a marriage that brings glory to God. Pursue godliness in your relationship with the unsaved. See, we are called to speak the truth. But we are called to speak the truth in love. Remember, our message is not condemnation. Our message is salvation. Christ came to save people already condemned in their sin. Our job is not to heap more on the burden, but to show them how the burden can be lifted. Let's be a people that show the mercy of our great God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. There is no doubt that this passage is deeply confronting, challenging on far too many levels, exposing to us both believer and unbeliever, but help us to have the humility of spirit to heed, to listen, and that if we are here this morning without knowing you as Savior, that today the Spirit would be opening our eyes to see the truth, to know that the sin and the guilt and the shame that we carry can be lifted and forgiven. And as believers, dear God, may we live in the mercy and grace that you have bestowed upon us and that we might be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.